0: Happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you, happy birthday Carrie Fisher, happy birthday to you and the new Star Wars trailer. What's up everybody? It's Monday. Happy Monday to you. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening or Happy Tuesday. Whatever day you're listening to this podcast. That's right. Today is Carrie Fisher's birthday. Oh, man, do we miss her. And on top of that, to celebrate, they are releasing the final Star Wars trailer tonight. That's right. We have been waiting for so long, and I couldn't have thought of a better time to release it than on Carrie Fisher's birthday. This is great. Oh, I'm so excited. Get ready, guys, because we've got a lot to talk about today. First of all, it's nine weeks until episode nine comes out, which means I have started my Star Wars marathon. One episode a week, starting with The Phantom Menace, and I'll be reviewing each and every episode until the release of The Rise of Skywalker. On top of that today, I got Mandalorian episode release dates. I got some talk on Disney's still shooting process of the rise of skywalker with two months away some uh, test screen reactions and disney's objectives for how to tie up the rise of skywalker so this is han talks first i'm your host han this is episode 20 something what episode are we on (laughs) uh let's get into it star wars fans back for another week of Star Wars Talk, here on Han Talks First. I just want to quickly let everybody know that um, I'm not in my studio today, so I apologize for the poor audio quality. I am out of town. I brought my recording equipment with me so I could record, but I left my hard drive at home, which contains... The software I use to record it. So I resorted to using my phone. Luckily, I got the new iPhone 11 uh, last um, about a week and a half ago. So the mic on it is a little bit better than my previous one. Um, So that's what I'm using. And I'm going to have to edit on my phone. So I hope it turns out okay and that you guys get Well, it's not too distracting for you. Also, if you hear some snoring in the background, that is the puppy. Um, He's currently dreaming. And uh, I can't really block out the snoring since I don't have the software. But that's where we're at. So let's get into it. If you guys saw, AMC announced that they're doing a Star Wars marathon the day before its release of episode nine, where you can watch all eight films back-to-back, followed by episode nine. I don't know how much it is to do that, but and I'm not sure how many people would want to do that. I'm not one of them. <laughs> I mean, as much as I'd love to see Revenge of the Sith in theaters or the pod racing scene in theaters or hell even the original trilogy in theaters I, I i just don't know if i could make it 27 hours and still be wide awake enough to be fully attentive for the rise of skywalker i just i don't know if i could do that so to those of you who are going to do that that's awesome I hope you enjoy it. Apparently, you get a free popcorn. Not free. I mean, you're paying like $1,000 to go watch (laughs) nine movies. But uh, you also get a collector's blanket and a collector's pin when you do that. Oh, and you also get to see episode nine before the early screenings. So I think it's at 5 o'clock on the 19th. But anyway... If you're not going to do that, you can do what I'm doing, and then listen to my reviews. So like I said, right starting this week, every week I'm going to be watching an episode of Star Wars until episode 9, and I'll be reviewing it right here on this podcast. This week I watched The Phantom Menace, and this will be the first review of that movie on this channel. I've touched on it here and there, and talked about some iconic moments from the movie, but now I'm going to talk about the whole thing. and. Yeah, up until episode 9. So let's see how it goes. Uh, So far, it's been a blast. But I'm going to save that for last, because I have some important things to talk about. Slightly a bit of news related, but just some stuff that people are talking about on the internet. So uh, for the first things, um, according to some people, episode 9 is still shooting. Not just reshoots. But apparently they're shooting they're reshooting seventy five percent of the movie, so essentially just making a whole new movie. I'm not sure how much of this I take as fact because I think a lot of it gets spun around when it's passed through the barking chain. So here's what I've learned and here's what I think is happening. So reshoots are very common. I know everyone's freaking out that, oh, they're reshooting Star Wars. This is crazy. This is like like they messed up. Something went wrong. Well, that's not always the case. I mean, everybody does reshoots. Even television shows do reshoots. It's just a chance, to, an opportunity to get some final shots that, you think would look good in addition to the edit that you've already made. And the rumor that had spread that they're shooting 75% of the movie in reshoots is something that I don't think is true. So, if they're doing reshoots, they would not be doing visual effects shots because those would have had been uh, animated, rendered, uh, tracked, all... Up till now. Like, they would have been done. At this point, they're probably still rendering or putting final, final touches on it. Similar, similar to uh, Avengers Endgame. When that was getting wrapped up. So, effects take the longest time. So, what I think they're doing is actual reshoots of any practical settings. Or inserts on, like, hands, objects, B-roll type material. Now, if it is true, and they're reshooting pivotal plots of the the movie, then they're getting into what went wrong with some movies in recent history. And they're known today as the Justice League treatment and the John Carter treatment. And before I tell you what those are, I just want to say that in addition to these rumors that this much of the movie is being reshot, they're also saying that they're doing this because they had six different endings planned out, and they showed it to different screen-testing aud- audiences. And most of them weren't happy with their showings. So they're going back and they're retooling it and making something different. Now... Audience tests are very, very common with movies. Uh, It's very rare that they don't get tests. The most recent one I can think of that didn't get an audience test was Goldfinch, and we all see how that played out. (laughs) Not only was that movie rushed into uh, film festivals, but they also didn't have a testing audience, and it's proved to be one of the biggest flops in, like, the last two years or something like that. So, I've been in test audiences before for movies. I don't know if I'm allowed to say what movie I was testing, but it was, it was like, early summer. So, maybe it was last year. So, I'll just, I'll tell you. The most recent one I did was for The Nun, the movie The Nun, the horror movie. And... What the screen test was, in my situation, was there was three of them going on at once. Each room had a different temperature setting. And each one had slightly different story interpretations. The one I was in, it was balls hot. It was so uncomfortable. And I couldn't wait to get out of that theater. And I think because of that, it made me dislike the movie. Um, There weren't, visual effects weren't done. And there was a lot missing. There was like scene skips. And that's because the movie wasn't done. And the questions they were asking were about things that didn't pertain to the story as a whole. So, even if I gave bad results on my on my scoring of this test film. It didn't mean it was a bad movie. I never saw the final product because I wasn't impressed with what I saw in the test screening. But that doesn't mean they they didn't go and complete the film and it turned out to be really great. I know a lot of people said they liked The Nun. So, maybe it's a good movie. I do have to get around to rewatching it. But so test screenings are not all what people make them out to be because honestly not a lot of people get to do them you either have to be signed up with a company or a family or friend of some of the filmmakers so not everybody gets to get in on that experience with these big hollywood production movies so anyway when the original round of principal photography ended on the rise of skywalker Allegedly, J.J. Abrams informed Disney that he was afraid that this movie would not satisfy all audiences. Disney, of course, wouldn't accept that. Their goal for this movie is that it must please everybody. They're well aware of the fan divide. And whether it's toxic or not, whatever anybody thinks, there is a divide. And there is a lot of weight on this last movie. So you would imagine Disney would tell them, JJ, crew, to do it over again and over again until they get what they feel is right. It's a method of retooling the movie's outcome over and over, reshoots after reshoots until they get the right ending. This is where the six, ending, six different endings come from, from the screen testing audiences. Now, with a release date set, that makes it harder and more expensive to get the project done, because they only have two months, three or four, once they started reshoots. So this is a little different than the John Carter treatment. John Carter did not have a release date set in stone when they went in to do reshoots. They just retooled it over and over until they felt like they got the right ending. But, of course, John Carter didn't do well in the box office. I think the problem with this with major retooling reshooting of a movie is that it's just all preparation i mean if you don't have if you they have an approved script right from the beginning, so this is why I don't think it's it's true. The script is where you get all your information if the script was approved way back in December of two thousand seventeen, which that's when the final draft was. Um, approved by Disney. J.J. said this himself on an interview with Colbert, I think. But that's how long ago this script was made. And if it was approved by then, they've they've been working on it for a while. Um, so that's why I don't think they're completely changing this ending. Because they've had the script for so long. Of course, they can change slight things here and there, but overall, I think they got... They got their ideas set in stone. Now, along with the Justice League treatment, they had the same problem as The Rise of Skywalker, where they did have a scheduled date for release. Now, Justice League is a different story because they were in competition with Marvel, the other comic book movie adaptation company. So they were trying to stay relevant, and they were busting out these movies as quick as they could, just to keep up with Marvel. So that's a different story. They they rushed production on that. They also had Christopher Nolan's Batman trilogy, which was taking up a lot of their time to get into their Batman and Superman. I don't think The Rise of Skywalker has that problem. They've had since 2012 to get this thing undergo. And since 2015 to focus on how they're going to end this story. So they've had a lot longer time. They've set those dates way back in 2012, too. I recently read the Bob Iger uh, book, The Ride of a Lifetime, and he talks about this. They set release dates way back before they even purchased Lucasfilm, that they were going to make the movies in 2015, uh, seventeen. And nineteen. So that's pretty f- far in advance notice, and I'm going to go over the book in another episode. That's not what this one is about. So the time frame between all the reshoots and the premiere is too short to fit conventional standards to moviegoing audiences. That's what Justice League did. So if all of this is true about Rise of Skywalker, is time management the real concern? And if so, who's to blame? You know, J.J. Abrams is known for wrapping productions way in advance of release. Star Trek, for example, was completely finished and put a pin in two months before its release. This is why he's a well-known director. So I don't think he's to blame if all this is true. But another reason why I disprove it is because they had the editor on set. They said this in an interview a long time ago that they were editing while they were shooting. So if they're going back to do reshoots, it's really not going to take that much time to add it into the finished product because essentially the whole movie should be cut by now. And we have the trailer coming out tonight, which tells me that the trailer's been ready. And if they're making this many drastic changes to the story... They wouldn't release a trailer right now. Not while they're still shooting. Because this trailer is supposed to tell us what is going on in this next movie. So let let me know what you guys think. That's kind of the rundown on what's been going on and that's my point of view on it. You know. But that's that. Now, Disney has given two objectives for The Rise of Skywalker. One and again, this is just rumor, is to undo the damage done and tie up the Skywalker saga in a manner that all audiences will find satisfying. Whether you believe it or not that The Last Jedi was a bad movie, it did damage Star Wars and divided fans. Even if I loved that movie, I would recognize that hey, there's people that didn't like this because they did things that weren't expected and they went a new direction, which I respect now. But it did hurt Star Wars a little bit. And so you could imagine Disney would want to fix that. Now, the second objective is that the Rise of Skywalker has to leave the audiences hungry for more stories in the Star Wars universe. So, yes, they are ending the Skywalker saga, But they're probably taking a lot of inspiration drawn from Avengers Endgame because it did that same thing. It completely ended that storyline. But it left people ready for the next movement and hungry for more stories in that universe. At least for me, it did. But at the same time, when you end something, it will kind of take some people out of that that world like for example i was so happy i got to live through the avengers saga the infinity saga but does that mean i have to invest a whole nother 10 years to see what the next big thing from them is going to be i mean they're releasing a lot within the next two years so one side of me is like yes i'm going to stick through it but the other side is like i i got what i wanted already and so that that must be an objective for The Rise of Skywalker. They have Kevin Feige coming in. They have the Dan and Dave trilogy, Game of Thrones guys, and Ryan Johnson. So this movie has to leave people hungry and wanting more from this universe. So they could be branching out and introducing a whole bunch of new things. Hence, all these new characters coming into the fold. That's one thing that I'm a little scared of with this movie, is all these new characters. Like, jeez, there's so many. Uh... And I'm just so scared. We got so much to cover in this. We're wrapping up an entire saga, nine films, and one movie. And we got all these new characters we got to address and tell the world about. I I don't know. It scares me a little bit, but I'm still excited. The last thing I want to talk about before I get into my Phantom Menace review is The Mandalorian. Recently, they released the episode release dates, and it's very interesting. How they're coming out, so we all know November twelfth is when the pilot drops, which is also the premiere of Disney plus itself, which I've already ordered, so i'm very excited december i mean November twelfth once it comes around that's what i'm going to be doing, and um but it's not going to be weekly episodes like we thought no, 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 it's not it's kind of weird. Episode 2 is actually coming out three days later, on November 15th. So, is it every three days, you're asking? No. Because the next episode is on the 22nd, and then the 29th, and then December 6th, December 13th, December 18th, and December 27th. So we got three-day skips, we got seven-day skips, we got five-day skips... It's not really consistent, and I don't know why they're doing that, because it seems like, you know, we're creatures of habit. We're used to tuning in every week to watch something, at least on cable, and or YouTube videos. Um, there's like a time and a date set. But with this one, it, it seems really random, and I'm not sure why. And that could confuse a lot of people, especially if it's it's being advertised as not the whole, the whole season is not going to be available at one time. So you'd assume it's every week. So, Hey, next Monday I'll tune in. And then the Monday after that. So it's a a little confusing and I hope they make that clear on, on the app, but we'll see. So now the moment you've all been waiting for, let's talk about star Wars episode one, the phantom menace. Turmoil has engulfed the Galactic Republic. The taxation of trade routes to outerlying star systems is in dispute. Hoping to resolve the matter with a blockade of deadly battleships, the greedy Trade Federation has stopped all shipping to the small planet of Naboo. While the Congress of the Republic endlessly debates this alarming chain of events, the Supreme Chancellor has secretly dispatched two Jedi Knights, the guardians of peace and justice in the galaxy, to settle the conflict. So that's the opening crawl of The Phantom Menace. So, just a recap, if you guys haven't seen it in a long time, The Phantom Menace is about the evil trade federation led by Newt Gunray, and they're planning to take over the peaceful world of Naboo. Hmm, semi peaceful. I'll get into it later. Jedi Knights Qui Gon Jinn and Obi Wan Kenobi are sent to confront the leaders, but not everything goes to plan. The two Jedi escape, and along with their new uh, Gungan friend, Jar Jar, they head to Naboo to warn Queen Amidala. But droids have already started to capture Naboo, and the Queen is not safe. Eventually, they land on Tatooine, where they become friends with a young boy known as Anakin Skywalker. Qui-Gon is curious about the boy and sees a bright future for him. The group must now find a way of getting to Coruscant and to finally solve this trade dispute. But there is someone else hiding in the shadows. Are the Sith really extinct? Is Queen Amidala really who she says she is? And what is so special about this young boy? So that is a basic rundown of what goes on in this movie. Now before I jump in to my review and analysis of this film, I know. I know Phantom Menace has its problems. I know there's people out there who absolutely despise this movie and I get it. (laughs) I really do. So don't hate me when I say that I love The Phantom Menace. Yes, there's parts of it that utterly confuse me, desperately bring me down and make me cringe, but There's something about it that (laughs) I love. It may just be the nostalgia of watching it as a kid and playing with the toys. I remember the first toy I got was this collection of different characters, which included Darth Vader, Darth Maul, Emperor Palpatine, Jar Jar Binks, And, ugh, there was some more. But I remember the the ones I played with the most was The Emperor and Jar Jar Binks. And I had this, I was only six at the time this movie came out. So I don't remember being in the theater, but I remember vividly walking, we were on vacation in Washington, D.C. And I remember vividly, playing with Jar Jar Binks and this other toy I had, which was a, this sounds so stupid, it was a naked mole rat. And I got it from the zoo up there. And I would put Jar Jar on this naked mole rat and have them ride around on bushes and coffee tables and whatever I could find. And that just went with me everywhere on this trip. And that's really all I remember about that trip was playing with my Star Wars toys. Uh, The naked mole rat has nothing to do with Star Wars, but (laughs) it was just one of the two things I had at the time. And I remember it was was a blast. And, you know, everything with Darth Maul, the fight scene, and you're all going to hate me, but I really love Jar Jar. You know, as a kid, I thought he was fucking hilarious. And... Uh, I I did think he was cool, and for some reason, every single one of his lines is memorable and quotable to me. Whether it's out of meme hilarity or just, I don't know, dropping in conversation just to have fun and watch people's reactions. But I do like The Phantom Menace. I will be talking about its faults as well, and talking about what is wrong with this movie, because... There is a lot wrong with this movie. It's nowhere near a perfect film. <clears throat> the Phantom Menace is the earlier form of the last Jedi in my opinion. It's very similar in how it goes on how it how it tells an adventure story. There is a lot going on in The Phantom Menace. A lot I watched it with my girlfriend and about 13 minutes in, I just, I paused it. Cause I, I was like, man, we've gone through a lot. I wonder what part we're at in the story. And I was like, Oh shit, we're at 13 minutes. That's a lot to go, to go by in 13 minutes. You know, we, we were on a ship in space and they fought a bunch of droids. And then they went into this invasion army down to a planet. And then they went underwater and they met with Gungans. And then they went through, uh, through the ocean and ran into a bunch of underwater creatures. And from there they went back to uh, Naboo and then they started running through Naboo and there was a bunch of Senate talk and there was so much that went down in such little amount of time. And I think that's one of the problems this movie has. I think what George Lucas tried to do with The Phantom Menace, was he tried to make this movie as close as he could to A New Hope without repeating anything. A New Hope is... Also, there's also a lot going on in A New Hope, but what makes A New Hope different and what makes it better is that it hadn't been done before. There was also a younger mind attached to the creativity, and there was a lot less dependency on politics and dialogue. And it was witty and charming and it didn't take itself seriously. The Phantom Menace takes itself very seriously with overtones of politics. Part of what makes sense to the subject matter it's what part it's what makes this subject matter alluring. And it's because there's plenty of vagueness to the politics. It's an attempt to show institutional behavior in the worst way. Like I said, in the opening crawl, there's taxation on trade routes. And they have stopped sending any trades to the planet of Naboo, holding them captive, so to speak, so that they can get what they want. And... Uh, There's a lot going on. And then you also have a senator that is the speaker for a planet. And they all meet in this courtroom in uh, Coruscant, which is the head of, I guess, the galaxy, as far as the institution goes. Yet in one scene when they're in this courtroom... The queen of a city on this planet is allowed to speak for the whole planet and vote for or move for a vote of no confidence in the chancellor of the galaxy, which makes no sense to me. I mean, a mayor here in our society couldn't speak to the House of Representatives and vote and move for a vote of no confidence in the president or if we had a world leader, for example. That's just not how the chain of command works. I mean, they could do that, but the, act, the fact of it going somewhere, mm, very unlikely. So the politics is all over the place. And then right away, the Chancellor sends Jedi Knights to settle the conflict between the Trade Federation and the Republic? They're... <laughs> They're police officers. They're keepers of... They're guardians of peace and justice. They're... They're the law enforcement, essentially. But they also... They're trained not to use their lightsabers for negotiation or <clears throat> uh, intimidation. Why would they send... Why would they send Jedis? Uh, it just makes no sense to me. Why wouldn't they send a chancellor advisor or the chancellor himself or another senator it, it's just it's it's so it doesn't make sense it didn't make sense to me as a kid <laughs> and it doesn't make sense to me now <laughs> i remember being a kid and watching this movie and being like oh they're having all this grown-up talk oh i can't wait for them to start fighting or jar jar to say something funny and I kept telling myself, you know, as a, when I grow up, I'll understand it and I'll get some of the humor and stuff like that. But I grew up and I still don't really understand what's going on. It's very vague and I understand the vagueness and I, I, I understand it enough that I have to put aside what I know about politics, the little that I do, and just put my imagination to what's going on. Because if you look at it, from a perspective where you you don't know anything about how political society works, it does make a little sense. And like Disney and like George Lucas say, it's for kids. But as a kid, Phantom Menace didn't make sense to me. And I only liked the fighting scenes. And it was really hard for me to remember anything else that was going on. I kind of checked out during the politics talk. So I think that's where The Phantom Menace struggles a lot. So first I just want to talk about some notes I had in chronological order from watching this movie. This has nothing to do with my analysis of the film. It's just things I've noticed. But while I talk about these points, I'll I'll, um, I'll elaborate and try to review it as best as I can. Uh, One of the first things I noticed was Boss Nass is weak-minded. If you look closely, you can actually see Qui-Gon Jinn is using his Jedi mind uh, tricks to convince him to give them a ship, to transport to safety, to let them go, and also to free Jar Jar. So I thought that was interesting that the leader of this underwater world on Nambu is not smart. And because, as we all know... It, Jedi mind tricks only work on the weak-minded. So I thought that was interesting. Qui-Gon Jinn really is a one of my favorite characters of The Phantom Menace. He's just got such a calm demeanor, and he's really focused, and he's really smart. And he's very confident, and he's generous. But he's not smart enough to see his own failures sometimes example Anakin Skywalker one other quick thing about Qui-Gon is he saved Jar Jar Binks from death Jar Jar Binks was banned from his community underwater and when Jar Jar brought them to this underwater world they said that they were going to punish him and I interpret as death. You know that he would—he was—he was banned from the society, and he came back as a punishable by death. And we don't know how their laws work there, but that's what I assume. And Quagginjin saved him. He said we could use a navigator on our travels, and he owes me a life debt. I would like you to release him to me. That way, he leaves your society, and he never comes back, and he'll probably die on this adventure. <laughs> so Boss Nass, along with being mind-manipulated, let him go. And he did that little... Oh, makes me cringe. And um, I never understood what that was, even as a kid watching it, when he made that noise. Now I realize it's whenever he's uncomfortable or he's feeling influenced or manipulated. Now I get it. But couldn't you just have resorted to just acting. (laughs) I know George Lucas hates actors and working with them, but come on. So anyway, I think it's interesting that Qui-Gon Jinn saved Jar Jar Binks. So if anybody wants to be mad about Jar Jar being in the movies, it's really Qui-Gon who you should be mad at. He's the reason why he's in the whole damn movie. And he was just... He literally was just doing it to save his life. That shows what kind of person... And what kind of disposition Qui Gon Jinn has? Very respectable person, and I say that he did it just to save him, is because he said he was going to use him as a navigator, but he never did. Remember, remember, they went on their own route, and when Jar Jar Binks asked where you're going, he said we're taking a shortcut. Don't worry. So they didn't need him; they were using the Force to guide themselves the whole time. So he kind of fucked himself there by saving Jar Jar and being stuck with that annoying creature the whole time. But I spec. The ability to speak does not make you intelligent. I say that to people all the time, <laughs> especially my roommate. <laughs> they don't know that I'm calling them a Jar Jar beings. So anyway, after that scene, we really open up this world of Star Wars into uh, really what started as a major um, movement in world building. And I think George Lucas does that very well. A lot of people complain about the effects of this movie, but you gotta remember, at the time, it was groundbreaking. And when you consider the fact that this movie was shot on film using that type of digital effects, it really is mind blowing. And it took them, uh, I think it was, let's see, seven, eight, nine, it took five years to complete this film. That's insane. That's because they were building effects. They were creating the technology to do this. And they really did make groundbreaking achievements. You know, they were the first to do motion capture with Jar Jar Binks. That's incredible. And Andy Serkis gets credit for being one of the the pioneers of motion capture with his performances. Smeagol slash Gollum in The Lord of the Rings. But if you if you go back and you watch The Fellowship of the Ring, which came out in 2001, I think, or 2000, and you look at Smeagol in that movie, it's really not good. It's actually worse uh, effects than Jar Jar Binks. The Smeagol in that first movie looked like a cartoon. Now, they really got the effects down in The Two Towers. But if you look at it, Jar Jar Binks was done... A hell of a lot better. And you know what? Some of the movements and details on Jar Jar Binks still holds up today. I say that with full confidence. I also watched a visual effects breakdown of uh, Jar Jar Binks by this YouTube channel called Corridor Crew. And they were actually talking about how inventive and how very well done Jar Jar Binks was done. And they took it apart and they really get into depth of how it was done, and it really is incredible when you think that this one woman was creating this thing and working with motion track, tra- uh, tracking and creating the first all-digital character is, it's incredible. I don't know how they even like came up with this. You know, it's crazy. But George Lucas was experimenting a lot with his young Indiana Jones series, and that series was done using tons of visual effects, and he says that he was testing things so that when he got around to making the next Star Wars movie, he would know what he needed to use, what he needed to improve, and that's how we got this. Another thing I want to talk about with the world building is the design, production design as far as ships, uh, planets, uh, buildings, Costumes even everything what makes this not connect to the original trilogy in an aesthetic way is the the, the worlds the the environments and the, the the aesthetic overall when Star Wars came out in 77 it was a futuristic film set in a world that didn't make the future out to be all shiny and beautiful, but instead um, trashy, like just beat down, worn. And that was because they were overruled by this empire that kept all the shiny stuff for themselves. And the prequels take place in a time where the Republic and the world was the empire with a different name, but they were considered to be good and in order and the light side of the force. So it makes sense that it would be all bright and shiny then, which is funny because it takes place in the past. But George Lucas did this to um, show what America, society, and culture has been through. And if you, if you look at it, for example, cars... Look at the cars we drive today on the street. They're all essentially the same color palette. You know, you've got red, gray, black, blue. There's nothing too crazy out there. And they're all boxy or they're all, they're just, they're factory. They're, they're mass produced. And we all drive essentially the same type of thing. But back when cars first came out and the sixties too, when, first, when cars first came out, of course, they were all the same as well. But then once I started actually getting into it with um, the 50s and 60s movement and early 70s, we started getting these really cool designs, these curves, and these different colors and features. And every car was different and exciting. And each car had its own story. And you could be different with each car you purchased. And you didn't have to spend that much money to get a really cool car. They were all like, essentially the same cost. Now, today, you got to pay an arm and a leg just to get a standard 2018 Nissan, which is what I drive. <laughs> and it's a nice car, but there's nothing special about it that separates it from everyone else. You know, if you see a yellow Lamborghini on the road, you're going to stop and look at it because it's different, right? We technically live in the original trilogy world. Uh, In comparison. And George Lucas was trying to make it so that the 50s and 60s of our society was the prequel era. And I think it's a really interesting concept, especially when you look at locomotive transportation. Early designs and trains were these big, beautiful, well designed, distinct transportation units and as time went on not only did they almost go extinct but they started to just become generic and they're just boxy and none of them have defining featurettes so it was just a play on our society and i really respect that that's something that the new trilogy didn't really get into they tried to make it seem like we're still in that empire strikes back world where there's different rules, there's different worlds, but essentially everything's still a little run down, beaten, worn, and trying to repair. So I can imagine if George Lucas was to do the sequel trilogy like he originally intended, it would have been a new aesthetic from either trilogy that has already been done before. So I respect what he did with that, and you can really see what I'm talking about if you watch... Revenge of the Sith, because that movie has the most adjustments. But in two weeks, we'll get to it, and we'll talk about that one. All right. <clears throat> so later on, we're introduced to the bad guys of the movie, which are this phantom menace, the pa- uh, Palpatine, <laughs> the emperor, the future emperor, and his apprentice, Darth Maul. Now, when he first introduced Darth Maul, My girlfriend started, like, giggling or something, and I was like, why are you laughing? And (laughs) She was like, I'm sorry, but I really love Darth Maul's makeup and design, but in this shot, he looks like he just got back from a birthday party, and he has tiger face paint on. (laughs) And now that's all I'm going to be thinking about. So if you watch the first, um, the introductory scene of Darth Maul, Take a look at his face, and it does <laughs> look like he just got called in from a birthday party with some t- tiger face paint, so that was, that was pretty funny. Um, also, another thing I noticed was that... Um, oh, there's there goes the puppy. Just woke up. Going to get some water? Good boy. So, where was I? Oh, uh, a small thing. One thing I noticed was that one of the droids... Um, pulls a Homer Simpson and says Do like Doh! And I think it's the actual soundbite From the Simpsons In uh, one of the well, oh When they're re- releasing the Pilots in the Ship hangar And they're all like sitting down Crisscross applesauce you know like They're about to pray or Learn how to count or something um, Qui-Gon Jinn uses the force to push Two uh, droids and one of them goes, Don't! And I just thought that was kind of funny. I think it was an Easter egg. Maybe George likes The Simpsons or something. But I, I really do think it was a Homer Simpson soundbite. Um, but the next thing I want to talk about is the dinner scene with um, Anakin, Shmi, and uh, Jar Jar and Padme and Qui-Gon. Uh, I'm not going to get into the introduction of Anakin because we all know how cringy that is. And, Are you an angel? Uh, we're, just, we're not going to talk about that. <laughs> um He's a slave. That's all you need to know. And one thing I caught that I really never caught before was that, because I kind of, like, block out anything Anakin says, but at this dinner scene, they're discussing, like, why don't you run away? And it's because they have a, a slave microchip embedded in their bodies from their owners. And if you cross certain boundaries, it explodes inside you. So if you try to run away, you die. I just thought that was interesting, and Anakin was talking about how he was trying to create a, a tracer so he could find out where in his body the uh, this microchip was, but uh, I guess he forgot to check his head. Uh, it's clearly where it is because it's causing some type of brain damage in there, and it's causing him to be awkward and schizophrenic and unlikable to the whole world. <laughs> but Shmi's pretty cool. Can we talk about how awesome Shmi Skywalker is? Uh, She One, she's a really good actress, and I loved watching her, and I missed, like, tiny things she does and the way she interacts with Qui-Gon, and I don't know, I just, I really liked Shmi Skywalker in this movie, and when she was letting go of Anakin, I could really feel the love there and how she was so happy he was getting another chance, and how sad she was going to be. And that just makes me really looking forward to, but also getting kind of sad for her when when I watch episode two and I get to see her demise. Um, I wish there was more of Shmi. Also a shout-out to uh, the the Clone Wars when she comes back, Um, and it was the actual actress voicing her. A really awesome... Uh, tie-in. Uh, it was a really cool scene. I don't know if it was Rebels or Clone Wars. I think it was Clone Wars, because I think Anakin was talking to her, but I don't know. Go check it out. Anyway, the dinner scene I think is one of the better scenes in this movie. Uh, you just you know block out Jar Jar's tongue situation, and you're good. It, it's a really good scene. It's really moving. And it tells you a lot about who they are. Honestly, you could start this movie with that whole scene and you're caught up because they talk about the Trade Federation. They were over there trying to negotiate and it went wrong and what we have to do to get there and they introduce, hey, we'll do some pod racing to win a bet or whatever. Honestly, they didn't have to do the pod racing. I mean, I, that's one of my, That's my also my favorite scene in the movie and sequence, but... Come on, there's another way off that fucking planet. <laughs> you don't have to pod race to get money to buy a part to fly away. They could have like hijacked it, or you just sell the sell the queen's clothes like Obi Wan wanted. He was like, "Can't we just sell some of the wardrobe, and then we can just fly away, get some gas?" I don't know. Anyway, after that is the pod racing scene, which. I I don't know why people don't like this, this scene. This pod racing sequence is incredible. Did you know that all, well, not all, but a good majority of the pod racing scene was done using practical effects? They actually built those pod racers in miniatures and shot them on a miniature set, that's right. All those, not all of it, but most of those desert scenes are built. The stadium is built. The people in the stadium are painted Q-tips. And they actually blew them up like they did with like the the ships in the original trilogy when they would blow up. And they would shoot them, they would shoot the the setting and they would run the camera through these trenches and stuff. And then they would put in the pod racers later. They shot the pod racers on a blue screen and they would just, uh, fit that in. And it's, it's just incredible. And of course they had like practical ones built so they could shoot the people inside and the puppets and everything. And I don't know. And you, you can't don't, Tell me that when you hear whenever you hear this sound, you're not like I don't know, your heart is beating faster and you're like, oh my god, Star Wars. I can't every time I hear that sound, whether it's like I don't know, from a car or something, I automatically go to the pod racing scene. Either that or I think of Arnold Schwarzenegger like shooting a machine gun. I don't know. But that scene is one of my favorites in all of Star Wars. I think it's one of the best moments in Star Wars, you can go back and listen to my Top 10 Iconic Moments episode, which was episode 2, and I talk a little bit more about it, but pod racing scene is absolutely incredible, and uh, I don't know, it's energetic, it's exciting, it was groundbreaking, and the video games that followed it were freaking incredible. Oh! Pod racing is inc- is absolutely amazing. So, Let's move on to everyone's favorite character, (laughs) Jar Jar Binks. Talk a little bit more about him. (laughs) There was this... If any of you have watched the the behind-the-scenes of the making of The Phantom Menace, you'll get this, but for those of you who haven't, here we go. In uh, there. George Lucas was talking to Ahmed Best, the guy who played Jar Jar, and he was teaching him the walk in this (laughs) behind-the-scenes, and it shows George Lucas actually walking like Jar Jar and, like, head-bobbing and everything. It's the funniest video I've ever seen, and, oh, God, it's so funny. And throughout the entire documentary, George Lucas keeps saying, if we could just get Jar Jar right, then we'd we'll solve this movie we'll figure out this if we could just get Jar Jar right we'll make the best movie we can if we could just get Jar Jar right then all of this would be a, a, like a mirror amazing and it's just so funny that he like relied on Jar Jar being so much for this movie and everybody hated him and then in episode 2 and 3 he's gone and it's just uh, kind of breaks my heart in a way That he had so much faith in this character. And it's funny. He said in, like, 1999 that, you know, a lot of people hate Jar Jar Binks. I love Jar Jar Binks. But in 20 years from now, you'll see a change. And everyone's going to love Jar Jar again. And he was right. It's been 20 years now. And suddenly, everyone's talking about how Jar Jar was one of their favorites as a kid. Because all those kids that grew up watching this movie love Jar Jar a lot. And now they're old enough and they get to express that opinion. Which I think is kind of cool. You know, I, I do like Jar Jar. Does it need to be in the movie? Absolutely not. Anyway. And I already talk, talked about his, like, the groundbreaking achievement of motion capture and everything. So I'm not going to go any more into Jar Jar except for the fact that, you know, he can fuck right off. <laughs> so, again, one thing I want to mention with Anakin again is... You know, I was kind of joking with, he has a brain condition, but one of my theories has always been that I really think he's schizophrenic. The character Anakin is schizophrenic. And that's what transitions him into, one of the things that transitions him into Darth Vader is he's schizophrenic. And it all comes from a mental issue of abandonment issues, of feeling out of control, of everyone telling him he can, he can do this, he's the chosen one, blah, 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 when that puts a lot of pressure on him. And what if the theory is correct, that he had his slave tracking device in his head the whole time, and uh, when he pulled away from Tatooine, who's to say that water didn't just detonate it in his head, and it kind of gave a little spark, and it damaged his brain a little bit, and that w- that's what helped cause him to go down the dark path. Anyway, just a small theory, I think it's interesting, but I can get more into that later, but Keep that in mind when you're watching these movies getting ready for episode 9. Anakin Skywalker could be a schizophrenic. Alright. Another really cool thing I like about this movie is Palpatine's maneuvering into power. Uh, One of the things that sticks out to me most is when he's hovering over Queen Amidala's shoulder and convincing her to what she should say, how they should... Remove the chancellor from office, and he, and he's like, and now they will elect a new chancellor, a wiser, a bolder, smarter chancellor. His manipulation through this entire film has been genius, and that's one of the things I do like about the politics of the original uh, sequel or sorry prequel trilogy is his maneuver into power, which is really what this movie should have focused on. We had is the complete dark side focus. ...of the Star Wars universe. Not Jar Jar. Not Jar Jar. and Daddy Big Boss Ness Johanna! Um, We don't need that. (laughs) One thing about Daddy Big Boss Johanna... ...is... when ...when they went back to go find the Gungans in the Gungan City... ...they weren't there because they were in hiding... ...at a sacred place, a sacred ground above ground. But if there was a war going on on your planet... And you had the option to live under underwater, where it's probably a lot safer. Wouldn't you stay there? Why would you go hide on land, where the fucking armies are? You know, it just didn't make sense to me. Anyway. Another thing I didn't like about this movie was... How the queen, Padme, shows no emotion. I mean, let's give Natalie Portman credit. She did show emotion while she was the, the um, handmaiden, Padme. But whenever she goes into queen mode, it's just monotone robot. And I get it. It's because a queen shouldn't show any signs of emotion or favoritism or empathy. They should be in control. I get it. But I that, we didn't need that. It just kind of it makes you not interested. So I wish Padme had more emotion to her character. It would have probably made it more interesting with the opening of attack of the clones when she dies and we it reveals that it's not her but anyway um i do like how the decoy was pretending to be her the whole time i think that was really interesting if i had seen that at an older age when it made more sense i would have thought that was really cool and a good twist Uh, another really good scene that i love is the blowing up of the droid control ship when Anakin does by accident, you know, now this is pod racing. I know it's like, you wish it was somebody else, but that's a really cool scene that takes place in space. But with it comes its problems, because it's intercut with the battle, the the ground battle, the space battle, and the Darth Maul battle. They're all taking place at the same time, and there's they go back and forth so many times, it's kind of hard to keep up, and I'm pretty sure there was some other side missions and stuff going on with that. Actually, yeah, there were, because um, Padme was trying to get into the palace to take over Newt Gunray. And, you know, they were breaking in and doing the, uh, the the grip line going up the side of the building, whatever that's called. And there was just a lot going on. But that Duel of the Fates Darth Maul scene is another one of the greatest moments in this movie. Uh, I mean, the choreography in it is incredible. The the story it tells without having any dialogue is great. I mean, you could tell that Qui-Gon is very patient and he's not doing this out of hate or just to just to end, end this guy's life or like stop following me. And that's what Obi-Wan is trying to do. Obi-Wan's so eager to get into the fight. He's so young and inexperienced and I mean Qui-Gon is too because there hasn't been Sith around but he's very collective and the scene where they're trapped in those um those red walls and the red doors and Darth Maul is just pacing back and forth waiting to get to him like everyone everyone breaks down like a like a caged animal a a dog trying waiting to for its moment to attack. It's just so beautiful. And it really gets into each character and who they are and how they address situations. And I don't know, there's just so much to reveal in that and how when Obi-Wan finally killed Darth Maul, he was on the lower ground. And when he jumped up to kill him, it was the same move that Anakin did in revenge of the Sith. And But Obi-Wan learns and he learns from his mistakes. He learns from his achievements and he improves constantly. And he becomes the master that he had in Qui-Gon. It's just beautiful. And of course, the last shot is Qui-Gon's funeral. And we get the reveal of Palpatine being the Dark Lord of the Sith. And I just love that reveal, especially the dialogue that leads up to it. You know, there's always... Always two there are, a master and an apprentice. But who was killed, the master or the apprentice? And it just pans over to Senator, new Chancellor Palpatine. And just so well done. And there's really good parts in this movie. <clears throat> it's just a shame that it wasn't executed as well. But you gotta give George credit. After The Phantom Menace, there was improvements in Attack of the Clones. Even though a lot of people say it's the worst one. There was improvements in Attack of the Clones. And then there was major improvements in Revenge of the Sith. He only got better. Gotta give him some credit there. <clears throat> That's really all I want to break down. That's things that stuck out to me. We've all seen The Phantom Menace. We know what goes on. But I want to share with you some fun facts that I learned about this movie. Do you know that Tupac wanted a role in this film? <laughs> in 1996, he reached out to the agent and asked to do a reading part for this role, and allegedly was supposed to go for the part of Mace Windu, which ultimately went to Samuel L. Jackson. But before he could get to read for the role, he passed away. Um, I just think that's interesting. I never knew that. Also, when this movie came out, it was a huge deal. We all know that. It was one of the biggest movements of all time. A huge event film. So much so that 75% of audiences seeing the movies The Waterway, The Siege, and Meet Joe Black, all left before the movie started because they just wanted to see the trailer. So those three movies, box office numbers, went sky high, more than they ever imagined, but they never stayed to watch the movie because people just went to go catch this trailer. That's so cool. And it was also one of the first movies of its time to market on the Internet. Internet marketing was very new at the time, and the trailer was released after theatrical onto the internet for the first time, and the views for it were the highest of its time. So this movie wasn't only making groundbreaking achievements in film, but also in online marketing and promotion. Uh, Another thing is there was only one shot in this entire film in which no visual effects were added at all, and it's the shot of the dioxys gas pouring out of the vents in that meeting room, in the opening scene. Literally the only shot that doesn't include visual effects. That's crazy. I feel kind of bad for these animators, spending five years on, like, one shot and stuff like that. Um, And it mainly has to do with Jar Jar. Jar Jar was in every scene after his introduction, and that's a visual effect. Another thing is, the word lightsaber is never said in this movie. It is only referred to once, and it is referred to as a laser sword by Anakin Skywalker. George Lucas just had to throw that in there, didn't he? So, that's interesting as well. Now, another thing is the script, the script explains that the reason why Watto is always flying is that he's crippled. And if you look closely, you can see that one foot is actually longer than the other. And he also talks out of the side of his mouth because <clears throat> he has one broken tusk and he slurs his words. So there's an interesting backstory there. It's just little things like this with characters and things, where they have defining traits that show that they have a story as well. I think that's interesting. Maybe we can get some more Watto info in a comic or a future story. hmm Could be cool. And uh, the last thing I want to mention is also, according to the script, it has to do with Watto again, is that when he rolled his uh, chance die... Qui-Gon fixed it to land on Red with the Force. We all saw this. But the reason why he was so upset with him was because it was supposed to land on Blue because it was a loaded die. And Qui-Gon tampered with it. uh, I'm sorry, backwards. It was supposed to land on Red because it was a loaded die. But Qui-Gon tampered with it using the Force and made it land on Blue. That's why Wada was so mad. And... He couldn't come out and say, this is a loaded die, it was supposed to land on that, because then the bets would be off. And he just has a chance to win a whole-ass ship, <clears throat> including to keep the slaves that he already has. So, that was really cool, too. I wish we got to see a little bit more of that, but that's one of those ambiguity things that you have to kind of read into in this movie. Well, guys, I mean, that's all I have for the Phantom Menace review. I know it was short, but... We got some other movies to get to, and you also got to get on with your day. You don't want to listen to me talk to you all day, do you? So that's it for this episode. I just want to say one more thing. You know, When I was a teenager, and I wanted to talk with people about Star Wars, there's this one instance that sticks out to me that I remember. Is I heard these two kids talking about Star Wars, and I was like, oh, I can go over there and make friends with them and talk about something we all like. I didn't have a lot of friends growing up. It was very hard for me to socialize. Now, not so much a problem, but back then I was a little shy. So I heard them talking about Star Wars, and I wanted to walk up, and I forgot what I said to them, but I said, Oh, hey, yo, I like Star Wars. Do You remember this part in blah, blah, blah with Darth Maul or whatever? And these two kids looked at me, and they said, Oh, we don't talk about the prequels. Now, this was while I was at film school, uh, pre-film school, because I was a teenager. And I was, I was so shocked that they said that, because usually the only people that I've heard talk bad about the prequels at that time were grown-ups, and I was like, oh man, now I'm, I look weird because I like the prequels, and man, I don't know what to say, and it really just took me by, su- by surprise, and I didn't become friends with those guys, and they didn't like me because I liked The Phantom Menace and stuff like that, but in recent times, there's been a lot of prequel love coming out, and I think that's because the kids who were my age at the time are finally becoming of an age where they can talk about what they loved in the movie, and I think that's great. And I really want people to open up their mind to these movies again and watch them again and see it from a different point of view. You know, watch it with a kid. See how they react to it. Maybe you'll maybe you'll see it from a different perspective and find some kind of love in it. Uh, I mean, I'm doing that with The Last Jedi, And I still don't like it, but I can watch it now. And before then, I couldn't do that. (laughs) I don't know. It just, it hurts me that we've waited, it's been so long. It took us this long to get to a point where we could talk about it and be okay with it. When we shouldn't have to. If you like something, just tell people you like it. If you don't, tell people you like it, but still respect their opinion and vice versa. Because, Um, It goes to everybody. I have friends who have different interests. I have a girlfriend who has different interests. But guess what? We all still get along. (laughs) We're all still best friends. It can happen. That's the world. But don't just go to Twitter and shit talk, you know. If you want to do that with me about this episode and shit talk me on Twitter, that's fine. Because that's actually a free promotion for me and I could use it. So please go to Twitter Go to Instagram, go to Facebook, Gmail. Everything's at Han Talks First. Tell me your Star Wars story. Give me your thoughts on the Phantom Menace. Let's talk about it because next week we're moving on to episode two, Attack of the Clones. Have a great week. Enjoy the trailer tonight. Listen back here tomorrow or the next day. We're going to break down the trailer. And oh, we're so close, guys. Two months, nine weeks. We got this. Love you all. Thanks for listening. May the Force be with you.